Hello and welcome to the European Conversations podcast. I'm Kirsty Hughes and today I'm talking to Nikolai von Ondatza, who is head of the EU and Europe Research Division at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Nikolai, it's great to talk to you today. We're going to have a very rapid end of year sum up on, on a few key European Union topics. And, and the first big one I want to start with is Ukraine. We've just had the EU leaders mid-December summit. They've agreed to open accession negotiations with Ukraine, also with Moldova. How big a decision is this for the EU? In my point of view, it's a it's a mixed bag. On the one hand, it's a historic decision, no doubt about it. Um, the EU has now confirmed that Ukraine is on the path to EU membership. Uh, but on the other hand, it's just the very, very beginning of the path. And we know from Western Balkans countries uh, how long that can take and how easily such a process can be blocked. And even that opening of accession negotiation was only possible via a uh, sort of institutional trick of Viktor Orban leaving the room, but still disagreeing with the decision itself. Um, and therefore, we can say uh, the negotiations are now supposed to be opened, uh, but there's a long, long way for Ukraine. And so I would say as an EU watcher, I wouldn't expect to for Ukraine, even if the war goes on a positive path for the country to join the EU before 2030, 35 at the earliest. 2030 would, would actually be very soon. And even 2035, I imagine both, both Ukraine would settle for that and, and it would it would change the EU a lot. I mean, you were on the Franco-German committee that looked at how the EU should change to cope with bringing in potentially up to, to nine more members. What, what You had lots of recommendations in that report, but what, what are the top one or two you'd recommend thinking about Ukraine today? Yeah, I think it's important to, to look at how fundamentally the EU would change. Uh, maybe for a UK audience, uh, it's interesting to compare that the UK, Moldova and the six countries of the Western Balkans have roughly the size of the population of the United Kingdom, but they would have eight times the vetoes. Uh, they would have about double the number of parliamentarians and small countries get more parliamentarians in the EU. And they have about 10% of the UK's GDP. Uh, and if you add that together, you, you really see that you would need to reform the parliament, you would need to reform voting in the council, looking at more qualified majority voting in an EU of 30, 35 countries. But you also would need to reform the budget, uh, agricultural policy. So, um, and this is what the council also said last week that not only these countries need to be prepared, the EU needs to prepare as well. And if the EU is really serious about Ukraine membership, the next five to 10 years will be dominated by these two processes for the EU to manage together, enlargement, but also reforming its own institutional structures, its policies, its budget to be ready for this vision of EU 35, 35 countries. It's a big challenge, isn't it? And we can say that the EU has risen to huge challenges in, in the past, but it will need to maybe do more than just uh, ask or push Auburn out the room, you know, in terms of, as you've just explained, the range of challenges. In the very short run, we, we know the next summit's on the 1st of February to try and deal with the, the veto that Auburn gave to the, the budget and the 50 billion for Ukraine. Do you expect that to bring a positive outcome? 
I'm fairly certain that the money will be freed to give to Ukraine. The question is just how. Um, basically, the two options on the table are all one folds, one way or another. Uh, and there's a decision of the EU to do the funding via the EU budget. Or, and I think this is actively now being explored to use some sort of mechanism where the 26 other member states uh, create a special fund out of the EU budget uh, to support Ukraine. And I think that is a more likely outcome because that would really show Orban that his veto, at least in this uh, in this instance, doesn't have the power. But for me, this is only a temporary solution. You asked about enlargement. Every step in enlargement needs anonymity. So you have about 35 chapters. Each need to be opened and closed by anonymity. So Orban has over 70 vetoes on the road for Ukraine EU membership. Uh, and so this in this sort of marathon, you need consensus on enlargement and EU reform for basically the next five to 10 years. And this is really the, the challenge uh, where you cannot just do one trick. Uh, you need to do it for the whole yeah. long run. On the other hand, if, if Orban vetoed even opening the easy chapters, as we, we call some of them, you know, it would bring things to a head very rapidly where, where the politics would go is another question. P picking up on the, the huge reform agenda, you very concisely described. Um, I mean, one of, one of the things your Franco-German report suggested was moving to some form of qualified majority voting in foreign policy. But how does that sit with the EU divisions we're seeing over Gaza, that they are so deep despite a numeric majority now in favor of member states in favor of an immediate ceasefire? That there weren't even any conclusions in the summit conclusions how worrying do you think that is in terms of the ceu just on the sidelines now so i guess there, there are two aspects to that question the first is does it make sense to have qualified majority voting in, in foreign policy uh, and we recommended in this franco-german group to extend qualified majority voting to most policy areas but also said quite specifically that this is not a silver bullet. Uh, it cannot solve all questions in the EU. It works against this kind of blackmail that Orban does at the moment, but qualified majority voting doesn't solve an issue where the EU is split in the middle, like on Gaza or for instance on migration. There you still need to have a long, long negotiation to find a compromise. And so I think Gaza is not the best example for calling for qualified majority voting because there are so many different camps within the EU. Uh, it's not just one or two countries uh, blocking, blocking the decision. Um, and therefore, I think this would be one of the instances where our idea of this so-called sovereignty safety net would, would fit in an issue which is so fundamental for a country uh, like Germany, which sees the existence of the state of Israel as part of its reasons of state, that this would be an area where even if there were qualified majority uh, voting, I think the EU member states would be well advised to negotiate to find an agreement. And this is sort of brings me to the second part of, of, of your question. What does it mean for the EU at the moment? I think it, it shows that it's or it makes it even more powerless uh, than it already is in, in the Middle East. It's not an area where the EU has in the past 20 years exerted a lot of uh, influence. Um, and in particularly in this issue, it's basically split three ways. Uh, in both of the votes in the UN General uh, Assembly, you have countries like Ireland, 
very much pushing in favor of a ceasefire. You had countries like Germany abstaining, and you had countries like Austria or the Czech Republic even closer to Israel who voted against it, with a very small number of countries, uh, including the United States. And so here, I think it's really uh, a big contrast to the unity we had on Ukraine, where the EU surprised many with being a more forceful foreign affairs actors, actor, and on Gaza, where it's so internally divided uh, that it might even better that it doesn't have a pro-forma position, uh, because that position wouldn't sustain any long run uh, as long as member states are so split on, on these very difficult issues. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary. And I, and I also think, you know, the EU has moved so slowly on enlargement in the last 20 years that, that actually the, the fact that despite all the challenges ahead that you've, you've laid out, the fact that it's got its enlargement mojo back and, and remembered that it can be very influential in its immediate neighborhood is, is something very positive to contrast to, to the divisions you're describing over Gaza. I'm going to move on. This is a very short and sharp podcast. So I'm going to move on to one more big issue, which if we're looking at big issues, then it has to be climate change. The day we're recording this podcast, there's just been a report from the European Environmental Agency saying, on the one hand, that the EU will miss a number of its green targets in 2030 unless it pulls its socks up. And yet, on the other hand, that it is on track to meet the reduction of emissions to 55% of 1990s levels. So how do, how do you sort of mark the EU's homework on, on climate change at the moment? And I know we're coming to the end of the podcast, but how concerned are you about right-wing backlash against climate policies? I think just on a on a purely policy level, the EU can, I think, has won some merits over over action against climate change. Um, some people call the 2019 elections the climate elections, where a lot of green parties um, had bigger success across the EU. Um, and the this von der Leyen Commission made the Green Deal one of its core policies. Uh, and over the last couple of years, there were quite a few substantial agreements on the Fit for 55 package, um, on the sort of phase out of um, ICE cars, um, on tightening up the EU target goals. And so overall, I think even if uh, you can still say the EU could do better, um, I think it has achieved in this legislative period its goal of really tightening up climate regulation and across many different sectors. Uh, my worry is uh, that this is not going to hold, uh, that in some sense the 20, 2024 elections might even be anti-climate elections with a lot of backlash in many EU member states, far-right parties in Germany, the alternative for Deutschland, but also Wilders in the Netherlands just campaigning heavily on limiting uh, climate legislation. And so uh, I think the task for the EU policymakers now is basically safeguarding the Green Deal and explaining it to the to the population, because now that the, the goals are tightened so much, you can see the costs are starting to rise for people with the switch to heat pumps, with rising uh, gas prices, rising fuel prices, and getting this balance right between following up on the climate ambition, but doing so in a socially sustainable way. I think that's a huge task where the EU is still a, a big road ahead. And so, I mean, as well as you say, the EU institutions safeguarding existing policies, it's going to be a real challenge to all center 
more progressive pro-climate, pro-tackling climate change parties to really make those arguments for, for the next six months until the election, mm -hmm. isn't it? And, and try and stop what we all fear may happen in June, uh, that we get a parliament that blocks some of these policies. I think the, the key here is actually the center-right parties and the European uh, People's Party, because they have voted in this parliament mostly with the pro-climate um, center-left green parties. Uh, but under pressure from far-right national conservative parties, uh, in the in the last months they've started to move away from it. Even though Ursula von der Leyen is herself from the EPP and has been on the forefront of pushing their green agenda, and the temptation might be both for the election campaign, but also afterwards, um, in the European Parliament that will most likely tilt more towards the right. Uh, whether the EPP will on some issues work together with uh, national conservatives, but even far-right parties to defeat European climate uh, legislation. And so I think the sort of crucial actor will be the, the decision by center-right parties in how far they are willing to go away from that or champion the agenda that they built with that von der Leyen Commission. These are these are really crunch questions, aren't they, for the year ahead? There, there we must leave it in our rather quick tour de table. But thank you very much, Nikolai von Andatso, for talking to me today.